The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptising in the desert region, and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. This is the Gospel of Christ. Thanks, Elaine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great joy and privilege it is to gather together on these Sunday mornings as your people and as brothers and sisters in Christ. What a joy it is to sing alongside others, proclaiming the truths that are in these great songs, to sing with great musicians that you've gifted to help us in our praise of you. And we pray that now as we pause and spend a bit of time thinking about a fairly controversial issue within Christendom, that you would help us do that, not just as individuals, but as the church, as a united people, part of your body, that you would help us in our thinking and understanding. I pray that you'd be with me, that I wouldn't speak insensitively, uh, but would speak with uh, understanding and graciousness as we talk about different views and thoughts. Uh, And I pray that in all things, you may work by your spirit in each of our hearts, minds and lives, so that we may love you more deeply and follow you more closely. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what could go wrong with today? Baptism. No one argues over baptism. I don't think it's been introduced this morning. If you're new or visiting us here at St Stephen's, we've been uh, going through some of the 39 articles, which are some of the statements of what the Anglican Church believes and holds, and uh, we've come to the one on baptism. (sighs) Just for polling purposes, uh, who here today would describe themselves... See, now I'm putting you on on the front line. Who here, just raise your hand, if you would describe yourself as believer baptism by theology... Just put your hands straight up. So, sorry, okay, but people want to know what the two options are. Okay, believer baptism is when you think only people that are of an age and stage that they can confess their faith and repent, only they should be baptised. Infant baptism or pedo-baptism, again, child, infant, is that the children of believers can be baptised. So there's the two options. So I'll ask again, who goes down the line of believer baptism? Just put your hands up. Wow, good number. All the Christians, put your hands up. <laughs> no, so we're split, which is what I kind of thought we would be. <clears throat> there is a big divide within Christendom, which is why I prayed, between those who think uh, only those of an age and stage who can confess with their lips and believe in their hearts should be baptised and those who think that the babies of Christians can be as well. Uh, I was reading a book uh, during the week which is written by um, two people, a Baptist and a uh, pedo-Baptist, if I can, if I can say that, uh, and it's not on baptism, it's on a whole range of ministry options 
uh, and ministry things, but when they came to the chapter on baptism, which they both wrote separate parts for, they, it was combined for the rest, but they both wrote uh, separate parts on this chapter, uh, they said, well, this chapter should be interesting. And then the pedo-baptist, when he began his bit, he said that his co-author had very nicely given him some things to help him write his section. And the most important was he'd sent him a tract called What the Bible Says About Infant Baptism. And when he opened it up, it was blank. Uh, and it was just white, just nothing. And But that at least is done in good humour. Unfortunately, Christian history is also littered with some serious division over this, some huge fallouts. And Christians who agree on some of the most fundamental and essential parts of the Christian faith, like the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, on the centrality of the cross, on the bodily resurrection, on so many things, can divide sometimes really painfully and difficultly over baptism. And the divisions are mainly around the how of baptism. How should someone be baptised? Should it be by full immersion or should it be by sprinkling or pouring? Um, and over who should be baptised, whether it should be a believer or whether it can be the children of believers. Uh, today I thought it would be appropriate for me to be up front and declare my position, so that because um, I've got you to do yours, uh, so that you can judge everything I say based on my bias. Uh, although I hope you judge it more on the scriptures and uh, those sorts of things. I would have described myself as a believer Baptist when I first became a Christian. So I first became a Christian in my late teens and it made more sense to me the believer baptism position. that you become Because baptism, as I'm going to go on and say in a few minutes, has got something to do with the start of the Christian walk, the start of the Christian journey. It's an initiation rite that happens as a one-off. It makes sense that when you become a Christian, you get baptised. And although I did a little bit of reading on it, I never did much. I never did much serious reading on it. However, once I had done serious reading on it and looked at the Bible, I changed. By that... That sounds ruder than I meant it. I changed particularly when I was looking at the Anglican position on baptism because uh, the Anglican church does baptise infants of believers. Uh, I didn't want to be a hypocrite and go into a church where I didn't actually agree with something uh, that they did and so I had to look into it for myself and I've got to say, I am declaring my interests here, not only did I change to uh, infant baptism, which I'll explain a bit more of in a minute, but I'm really keen on the Anglican teaching on this. I think it's good and helpful for us. However, although I'm speaking from an uh, infant Baptist background, I'm married to a Baptist. Don't cheer. There's nothing worth cheering there. Married to a Baptist. Uh, I'm, therefore, I can crack jokes about Baptists because I'm married to one. Uh, my in-laws... My in, what was that, mate? For the meantime. For the, yeah, <laughs> while I'm up here. It all finishes afterwards. My in-laws, I could tell you lots of things about my in-laws, but I'll limit it to just that they're Baptist. I also, we've got three children and, here's my deep dark secret, none of them were baptised as infants, even though I believe in the baptism of infants. So I speak to you today as someone who believes in infant baptism but I'm married to a Baptist and none of my children were baptised. Why were none of my children baptised, you might ask? I don't know that I want to share that. <coughs> but it could be one of four reasons, right? It could be one of four. Firstly, I don't care about the baptism of my children. Secondly, I'm very good at compromising on the baptism of my children. Thirdly, I do as I'm told. <laughs> Fourthly, 
Fourthly, it could be a weaker brother argument. You know, in in Romans, there's a very important principle in Romans where the person who's got the stronger faith and is right, (laughs) laugh all you like, but it's in the Bible, (coughs) when there's a weaker brother that is wrong, but what should you do? You don't try and exert pressure on them, you love them. And I love, I love that weaker brother argument. Why? Because the weaker brother is vegetarians uh, in Romans. That's what it is. Again, sorry, I'm just quoting God. Um, but you could also, so it could be any of those four reasons. It could be that uh, I don't care about the baptism of my children. It could be that I compromise on it. It could be that I just do as I'm told. It could be a weaker brother. It could be anything. Anyway, I, I wanted to let people know um, uh, about where I stood. Of course, in the end, it doesn't matter where I stand. It also doesn't matter where other wonderful Christian leaders have stood down through history because we all t- tend to kind of point to our heroes and go, ah, oh, well, they were on our side. And so the, the Baptists go, well, Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist. It's hard to get better than Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he wasn't the only one, though. You could list a number of really good uh, Baptist uh, Christian leaders down through the ages. John Bunyan was, Oswald Chambers, some of the, um, uh, the modern ones, John Piper, David Jackman, who meant a lot to me. But the infant Baptists have got their own kind of roll call uh, of uh, heroes. Luther, Calvin, Cranmer, Ridley, Latimer, Baxter, Owen, Wesley, Whitfield, <laughs> Stop, Packer, Jesus... The Lord. Uh, you, you can go on and on. Sorry, was that unfair? Uh, the key thing this morning is not what I, I think or any of those others think. Uh, we're looking at it in the light of the angle. So I'm not even trying to say I'm doing an incredible job on the whole of baptism or anything like that. We're looking at it in the light of what the Anglican Church teaches on it. And so although we're kind of skating over some of these things, I hope it can be helpful uh, in, a few, in, in, in a few ways for people this morning. And to be honest, although the controversial issues of the mode of baptism and who should be baptised are there and important to think about, there's more to it than that. There's more to baptism than that. Uh, So I've got four headings this morning that um, uh, I'll I'll bring to you. Baptism, firstly, baptism, why do it? Secondly, baptism, what is it? Thirdly, baptism, how to do it? And fourthly, baptism, who should do it? Okay, so they're the four. Why do it? What is it? How to do it? Who should do it? Firstly, baptism, why do it? It's a fair question. Because in a moment I'm going to spell out how little the New Testament actually says or teaches about baptism. So you could ask yourself, well if it doesn't come up that much and it's not that clear, why bother about it? Especially if it's an area of contention within Christian circles. If it's not only that there's not much said about it, but that which is said is a bit unclear and Christians fall out over about it, why not just leave it behind? I think the Quakers, John's not here this morning, I think the Quakers don't do baptism. Why don't we just kind of follow in their footsteps? Well, this is why we should. Remember last week we looked at the sacraments as a whole, and this week we're looking at the first of the sacraments, baptism. Next week we're looking at the, the second of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper. When we looked at the sacraments as a whole, I gave what I think is the best definition of the sacraments. What was it? There were three parts to it. A visible sign of an inward grace ordained by Christ. Get that? So, visible sign of an inward grace ordained by Christ. Baptism was ordained by Christ. He told his followers to do it. Right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we see Jesus ordain the practice of baptism. Remember what he says at the Great Commission? 
So Jesus at this point has died, he's risen, he's about to leave to go back to the Father and he tells his followers to go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He tells his followers to baptise Uh, to baptise Christians in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then, as you keep reading in the New Testament, you see the, the, the apostles doing that. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preaches to the crowd. Here's the beginning of the, of the church, if you like. And he preaches to them about Jesus. And then they say to Peter, what should we do in the light of this? And what does he say? Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptised, every one of you. So they're doing baptism. At that point, uh, the Baptists kind of set up a little bit straighter. Repent and be baptised, Jay. Did you pick that up? Can't repent if you're an infant. Well, we'll come back to that. But remember, straight afterwards, Peter says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children. Ooh, one all. One all. But you see the apostles then going out and... uh, Baptizing. Peter does it on the day of Pentecost. He does it not just to Jews, but he does it later on in the book of Acts to Cornelius, to Gentiles. We see the apostles teaching it and practicing it. So why do baptism? Because Jesus told us to do it. And then we see the apostles doing it and we carry on doing it uh, ever since. So that's firstly, uh, why should we? Secondly, what is it? Can we have on the screen, after the reading, we've got the article, uh, the Anglican article on baptism. So number 27, let's read through it and see what it is, according to the Anglican Church. Article 27, baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference whereby Christian men are discerned from others that be not christened, but it is also a sign of regeneration or new birth whereby, as by an instrument, they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. The promises of forgiveness of sin and our adoption to be the sons of God by the Holy Ghost are visibly signed and sealed. Faith is confirmed and grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. The baptism of young children is in any wise to be retained in the church as most agreeable with the institution of Christ. Right, there's the article. Again, it's old-fashioned language, isn't it, and those sorts of things, but let's have a look at it in a little bit more detail as we think about what it is. Have a look at the beginning again. It says, it's not only a sign of profession and mark of difference which discerns Christians from others. In other words, it is a sign. It is a profession and mark of difference. This is one of the key things that baptism is. It's a one-off initiation rite for Christians to show the difference between Christians and non-Christians. It marks us out. It's something that every Christian should do. Jesus tells us, when you become a Christian, get baptised. That's the pattern in the book of Acts. Uh, Notice too, it uses baptism and christening interchangeably there. I don't know if you picked that up. Uh, I only point that out because sometimes people come up and say, I'd I'd like to get my baby christened but not baptised. Well, it's the same thing within the Anglican Church. So, but it goes on to say it's not just a mark or profession. It's not just something that separates out. There's more to it than that. See, it goes on to say it's a sign of regeneration and new birth. So it's about death and life. This is where, John, where Jesus is with Nicodemus and says a person must be born again. That's what baptism is a symbol of, new birth. It's also about, if done rightly, as the article says, being grafted into the church. 
which makes sense because if it's an initiation rite, if it's something that marks you out as a, as a Christian, it's about showing that you're now part of the people of God. You're grafted into the church. It's also about the forgiveness of sins. Again, here's the water symbol. Water's great for new birth. It's also great for washing, washing clean, forgiveness of sins. And adoption as children of God visibly signed and sealed. And it says, notice, faith is confirmed. Not created, confirmed. It's not like you get baptised outwardly and then you're given faith and then you become a Christian. That's not what it is. It's confirming what's happened inside. That's the inward grace. So putting it all together, because there's a few parts to that, remember this is just the outward sign of the inward grace. What is the outward sign? It's an initiation rite to show that you're part of the people of God and you've received cleaning and new birth. That's what it is. That's the symbolism of it. Now that's the outward sign. We've always got to remember the inward grace, what it's pointing to, what it's symbolising. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism of Jesus. Remember the reading that uh, we heard from Mark's Gospel? John the Baptist, who did, re- who did baptism, it was a baptism of repentance, said that after him would one day come someone who doesn't baptise with water, like John did, but with the Holy Spirit. And so there's an inward baptism that a Christian receives that actually washes us clean, washes our heart clean, changes our heart, gives us new birth and forgives us. That's done by the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus that baptises us. And then the outward baptism is just the symbol of that. Do you see that they're distinct? They're, They're separate in that way. Very important to know that. Because it means that there is an essential baptism that every Christian needs. The baptism of the Holy Spirit done inwardly. The cleaning that's done, the new birth that's given. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 21, and this can be confusing when Christians read it, it says that baptism saves you. And that's been used badly down in the churches in some way to say that, oh, well, you've got to get kind of outwardly baptised to be saved. No, that's not what it's talking about the inward baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what you need. But there's the outward baptism, which is important because Jesus has told us to do it, but is not essential. I still remember the first time I kind of clicked onto this. Uh, Jamie, um, as I said before, comes from a Baptist background. We were about to travel to the UK and Jamie hadn't been baptised and so we decided that Jamie would get baptised. And Dad, you did it, I think, in a spa pool. Yes, we'll talk about mode of baptism in a minute. Uh, Now, if Jamie hadn't been baptised before we went to the UK and we'd crashed in a plane, would Jamie be saved? Not everyone's nodding here, Jamie. You're in, uh, I don't know if that's a personal reflection on Jamie's character or whether it's trouble with baptism. Uh, yeah, absolutely she would have. She trusted in the Lord Jesus. If you trust in the Lord Jesus, you've had inward baptism. You've had the Holy Spirit. Clean heart, new birth. You've, you've had that. Um, so it wasn't essential in that kind of way. Is it a good thing to do? Yes, but not, not essential. In Acts, the book of Acts, when you read through it, baptism is nearly always done immediately when someone becomes a Christian. Why? Because it symbolises what's happened inside and it marks them now as a Christian, as someone who's had new birth. So that's what it is. An outward sign symbolising the washing and new birth that the Holy Spirit does in the heart of a believer. Well, that's what it is, secondly. Thirdly then, 
How should we do it? Do we do it by immersion? Do we do it by sprinkling or pouring? Does it matter? Well, I want to say, and um, I'm very happy to stay behind afterwards and people kind of come and chat with me about uh, things, but uh, the truth is, in my mind, that the New Testament doesn't spell out a mode or method of baptising. I can't see anywhere where there's a clear instruction, this is how you must do it. Therefore, I always think we should show some humility when we talk on this. Now, there is more to say on it, and I'm going to say a little bit more now, but I do think it should be with a humble spirit, a humble heart. You can think about, think about uh, immersion for a moment. Uh, Immersion is kind of going fully into the water and then coming out. The word baptismo, which a lot of the uh, translations of the word baptism in our New Testaments comes from, baptismo, means literally plunge or dip or immerse. So you might think, well, game over. Uh, It says baptismo, therefore it's a plunge or a dip or an immersion. But we know that words, although they can have a meaning, can have secondary meanings as well and doesn't always mean the same thing. Uh, In Luke chapter 11 verse 38 we read of Jesus going to uh, a meal with the Pharisees and in chapter 11 verse 38 it says this, but the Pharisee noting that Jesus did not first wash before the meal was surprised. But literally what does it say there? It says the Pharisee noting that Jesus did not first get baptised before the meal was surprised. It uses the word baptismo. And in that context, it's very unlikely that they were expecting him to have a bath. What, it, what they were expecting was for him to pour water. So it's not quite as clear as we might think. Another aspect of the language that people sometimes use to say, well, it must be immersion, uh, is for a phrase that it uses after baptism. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 10, it says that Jesus is baptised and then, quote, comes up out of the water. Ah, well, immersion then. Must be immersion that it's talking about. But it doesn't have to be. It could be that he gets baptised and then afterwards he comes up out of the water. And the reason why that makes sense is later on in the book of Acts, do you remember the incident when uh, Philip baptises the Ethiopian eunuch? Uh, It uses the exact same phrase, but it says they both afterwards came up out of the water. Well, Philip didn't get baptised. He did the baptising. So it would be a strange, if if that language was only used for immersion, it would be a strange kind of uh, use of it. Uh, The other thing to bear in mind is, as I've said before, baptism is most often linked with the, no, I should say first, I like the imagery of immersion. I think there's something really strong uh, with that uh, imagery. Death and new birth is associated with baptism and there is a sense that being submerged under and then rising up kind of gives that picture and uh, I like it. Um, In fact, it's probably my favourite method because I like that imagery. But it seems arbitrary to me. It doesn't seem that it's compelled. It seems that it's optional. You could argue that because... Uh, outward baptism is so linked with inward baptism of the Holy Spirit, what's the language used of the Holy Spirit coming upon people most often in the Scriptures? Poured out. Not immersed, poured out. You can argue in different ways for both. I don't think the New Testament definitively says so. And so I think we can have our own preference. We can come to our own understanding. But it's probably appropriate to grant liberty to others who may think differently 
because it's not clear. There is a danger, I believe, of laying on people's consciences things that we have freedom in or making rules and restrictions where there shouldn't be. And I point that out because you may have noticed from the Anglican article, it doesn't spell out a method. Anglicans don't have one. Some people think that Anglicans are all about the sprinkle. Not true. Anyone said, well, you're the sprinkling church. Not true. We don't have a mode. We don't have a a set method. The article doesn't specify, so we can do whatever we like. Now, sprinkling, pouring, tends to work better with infants. So if you're a church that baptises infants, probably better not to go the immersion way. I think Osh would have something to... You know, there's, there's issues there. But we can and do here at St Stephen's do both. I've used the bowl or the font when we're back in the church for infants here at St Stephen's. We've used a pool in the church or the pool here at the school, do you remember, for immersion. I think it's great that there's that flexibility where I think the Bible gives us flexibility. Uh, I like the position. Uh, As I said before, I quite like immersion in terms of what it says and what it states, but I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's prescribed in that way. So that's a little bit on how to do it. Lastly, who should do it? But we've run out of time and... uh, (coughs) Here again, I, this is my, and you can come and see me afterwards, I think we have to be honest and say I don't think there's a lot said about it in the New Testament in terms of deliberate instruction. There's actually no baptism in the Gospels until you get to the Great Commission. So the baptism that's going on is John the Baptist's baptism or other baptism which isn't specified what it is. It's not till right at the end of the Gospels Christian baptism comes in. And then what happens is you see a lot of baptism acts in the book of Acts. And that leads to a lot, I think, of confusion over baptism because it's the book of Acts which most commonly links baptism with repentance and or faith. Do you see the argument here? You don't baptise infants because baptism should go alongside the faith of the individual or the repentance of the individual. And if it's a baby, they can't. Well, you get that really from Acts. Firstly, I do want to say it's not actually linked with repentance much. I made a mistake on this at my first year at uh, Bible College where um, we had a a lecturer up the front who was talking about infant baptism and I didn't really go along with it. I said, yeah, but what about all the times in the New Testament it says repent and be baptised? And they said, well, what all the times? I said, well, all the times. This is in front of about 200 people. You know, all the times it says repent and be baptised. That's clearly saying you've got to do something and that's when baptism goes. They said, well, well, where does it say that in the New Testament? Well, I said bravely, Acts chapter 2, Peter says it on the day of Pentecost. Yep, that's right, Jay. Where, where else? Lots of other places. <laughs> no other places, apparently. Uh, and I was so, I was sure he was wrong. I remember going home and getting a concordance and looking it all up. It's nowhere else. Uh, it's only there. But there are lots of occasions in the book of Acts where it links baptism with faith. Lots of places in Acts where it links it. But what's the problem when you're trying to work out how baptism should work and operate from doing it from the book of Acts? What's the problem with it? 
The problem is that Acts is narrative in terms of its genre of literature. We've talked about this before here at St. Stephen's, you remember? What I mean by that is when you're reading through narrative parts of the Bible, like Genesis, like the Gospels, like the book of Acts, it's telling you what happened. It's describing the events. It's not prescribing what you must do. That's a very important point to remember. And we do that automatically with lots of parts of narrative, but we forget it with other ones. So when we're reading through the Gospels and we come across Judas betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and cause him his life, we don't go, oh, that reminds me, I should really betray my close companion for 30 pieces of silver uh, and get him killed. It's why when we read through in the Old Testament and we see David see a, a naked sunbather and have an affair, we don't go, oh yeah, that's what I should do. Because uh, narrative is just telling the story. It's saying what happened. It's not saying what we must do. There are other parts of the Bible that do tell us what we must do. In the New Testament, that's the epistles. That's not describing anything. It's prescribing what we should believe and not believe, do and not do. Acts uh, is difficult. You've got to work out what's going on with Acts. Is this just describing it or is it telling us what we do? Now, if you take out Acts, how much does baptism come up in the rest of the New Testament? Very little. In the epistles, there's over 20 epistles, it only comes up in about six or seven of them for a total of about nine or ten times. Uh, In five of them it's mentioned once, in one it's mentioned two, in one Corinthians that's the one where it's mentioned multiple times. But even in the multiple times, a number of the references are negative Not negative as in you shouldn't do it, but negative as in in chapter 1 verse 14, Paul says, I didn't baptise anyone except Crispus and Gaius. So although that's mentioning baptism, it's not in a kind of... The other one he says in 117, I think it is, he says, I didn't come to baptise but to preach the gospel. Now there are mentions of baptism but not explaining it. What makes it even more complicated in the epistles is some of the verses, it's unclear whether it's talking about inward baptism or outward baptism, like the 1 Peter one. So there's very little said on it. So in, with a dearth of information, what can we say uh, about uh, who should be baptised? Firstly, I want to say really clearly and up front, I don't think there's any example of an infant or a child being baptised in the New Testament. I think you've got to be clear about that. Um, and I think at one level that means the burden on, of proof is on those that think they should be allowed to. Uh, even though, and, and this is true, a number of times when baptising is done, it's not just of an individual, it says they then went and baptised their household. That happens for Lydia, it happens for the Philippian jailer, it happens for the household of Stephanus. Uh, and lots of people would say, well, household must mean children as well. You could mount that argument, but it doesn't say it. So I don't think it definitively says anywhere in the New Testament of an infant or a child being baptised. Um, Uh, Others then link it, as I said before, to repentance and faith, but I've pointed out you've got to be careful with that, especially because the book of Acts is what? It's the story of the gospel going out. It's the story of evangelism. So, of course, you're going to be reading of people hearing the good news of Jesus, then getting baptised as adults. It's focusing on the first generation. What it doesn't say is then what happens to their uh, children or their uh, households. Um, There's a whole lot of difficulties in it. What, what can we say? I would, 
I would want to say that although there's no specific instruction on baptising infants, you can mount a good argument for it being appropriate uh, and allowable and permissible. Uh, Let me give you a, a couple of reasons why I think it is. In the Old Testament, you've got the Old Covenant for the people of God. In the New Testament, you've got the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, there does clearly seem to be a one-off initiation rite and an ongoing edification rite. And what I mean by that is a one-off, you're marked as the people of God and an ongoing, this feeds you and sustains you as a member of the people of God. What's the one-off initiation rite in the Old Testament? Circumcision. What's the ongoing edification one? Passover. Passover. Now, when you get to the New Testament and the New Covenant, I don't think you can argue that the fulfilment of the Passover is the Lord's Supper, communion, the ongoing. It's the same kind of thing that goes on, which could lead you, although it's not explicitly said in the New Testament, to see that circumcision is replaced or fulfilled by baptism. I think you can mount a fairly strong argument for that not just in terms of the theology of it, but certainly in terms of the practice of it. The early church all did infant baptism, well, mainly did infant baptism. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's um, therefore odd if you make any link between circumcision and baptism that there is silence in the New Testament saying don't do uh, baptism on children. Because if you link it with circumcision, which was done to what? To whom? to to eight-day-old babies, it was done to infants. If you've got that kind of link and then baptism fulfils it, it's odd that you would not say somewhere, oh, by the way, don't get it confused with circumcision, don't do it to your infants. So although some people say, oh, the silence on infant baptism in the New Testament is an argument against it, I think you can use it the other way around and say it's an argument for it. Because if a Jew converted to Christianity, they would have been astonished that you didn't set apart your children as part of the people of God. They would have been blown away at the thought that you didn't have an initiation right to say these children are now part of the family of God. And there's no restriction given anywhere. Now that's totally an argument from silence. I understand that and you may not find it compelling. I do. But it's not just that. It makes sense of what we do as the people of God. See, when the people of God, whether it's Old Covenant or New Covenant, have children, how do you treat them and how do you raise them? You treat them and raise them as part of the people of God, don't you? Isn't that how we raise them? I raise my three children as if they are part of the family of God. Why would we not mark them as part of the family of God? Why would that be separate from? Uh, it's, It's kind of thinking through that. If you believe that infants, before they can speak and have faith and repentance, can have God's spirit within them working, if you believe infants, before they can do that, can be saved, why would you, not, uh, why would you have a problem in marking them as such? And on top of that, you've got Peter on the day of Pentecost saying children are heirs to the promise. You've got Jesus saying that in order to inherit the kingdom of God, you've got to be like little children. You've got households being baptised, not just infants. Now, I don't want to overstate it. There's no clear instruction but I think you can mount a strong case to allow the baptism of the babies of believers. And that's all the Anglican Church does. It doesn't compel infant baptism, it allows it. I want to make this very clear because it's important. I tricked you at the beginning. 
You fell for it. I said, who are believer Baptists? And some of you put your hands up. All of us should have put our hands up. We all believe in believer baptism. We all believe, all Christians, that if someone becomes a Christian, they should get baptised. That's the clear pattern of Acts. Everyone believes in believer baptism. The only added question is, are you also okay with the children of believers being baptised? That's the only question. And I think we can be. That's all that Article 27 says. It doesn't say you must. It doesn't say we're infant Baptist people. It just says you can. You can. It doesn't compel it. It says the baptism of young children is in any wise to be retained in the church as most agreeable with the institution of Christ. Do you see that? It doesn't require it. It allows it. And I love that. Because in an area where I think there's no clear instruction, it gives freedom. And so a parent or a minister can baptise the babies of believers if that's what they want to do or believers themselves. And we can do it by immersion or we can do it by sprinkling and pouring. I love the way we grant freedom depending on conscience and understanding. And I think that's better. I need to be careful how I say this because I don't want to be too harsh but I, I think it's a point. I think that's better than churches that require baptism a certain way or restrict membership based on it because I worry that we're then setting a a harder principle than the scriptures do. And it's something for us to think about and wrestle with. Now, I don't like some of the things that we as Anglicans do with baptism. I don't like the way we elevate one sacrament over the other. There's all sorts of rules and restrictions on the Lord's Supper and hardly even on baptism. And So we've got problems in our own backyard as well. But can you hear what I'm saying? I need to wrap up. Uh, Two extremes I want us to avoid with baptism. Firstly, I don't want us to focus too little on it. Because it's controversial or we don't think it's that big, Jesus ordained it. It's one of the only two sacraments that we've got and he gave it for our good. This has been my problem over the last few years. I shared it a couple of weeks ago when I apologised. I don't feel like I've put baptism in the place it should have had. And I apologise to some of you who've repeatedly asked me to get baptised and I've put you off because it's a bit trickier because we don't have a font or it's out of season for the pool or... If you're here today and you want to be baptised because you're a Christian, you want to mark that, come and see me and we'll get it sorted out. And we'll do it somehow. Even if it's a special service down by the sea. Now who wants to get baptised? But we'll do it somehow because it's a great thing and it's a good thing and it should be a celebration for our church family. We celebrate when uh, babies are born into Christian families. We rejoice when people themselves uh, believe in the Lord Jesus and are baptised. It's a great celebration. So I've lowered it too much, I think, and I apologise, and we can do that. That's one extreme. But the other extreme is making too much of it or giving it too many restrictions and regulations than I think the Scriptures do. Remember last week I said one of the dangers with the sacraments is we focus on the outward visible sign more than the inward grace. We've got to beware that we, 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 we keep a right liberty and freedom if the Scriptures give us that. We want to do baptism. I'm sure it delights the Lord. It's certainly strengthening for his people. It's the right thing to do, but we want to do it well. We want to do it in a way that honours him and doesn't put uh, other burdens on people. I need to finish. Um, Queue up over here on the right after the service. (coughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, above anything else this morning, we want to thank you for baptism. We want to thank you for the sacraments because here, uh, as we live as Christians day by day with faith, not sight, 
as we uh, live for what's unseen, not seen. The sacraments are different because they are seen, they are visible. It's something uh, so encouraging in our Christian walks and so we thank you for baptism. I thank you for every person here this morning who, who has been baptised, for what that means, not just outwardly but inwardly, what you've done by your spirit because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for any here today who want to get baptised because they want to follow you and they want to show that. They want to show what you've done within them. And I pray that we would be a church that delights in baptising people into the name of you as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But Father, help us do that in a, in a gracious, faithful way. Help us do that in a way that brings you honour and glory. And help us in our discussions as we keep talking over this really important issue. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.